with the Pharisees about divorce, then Jesus welcoming the children, and then an encounter with the rich young man who seemed to have a problem with his wealth. Uh, Jesus' teaching during these encounters illustrates the radical nature of what it is to be a disciple. And I know the word radical has kind of got a bit corrupted these days, but it means far-reaching, it means transforming. And Jesus' teaching is radical. And you remember he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not necessarily an easy thing to follow Jesus. Some of his teaching seems to be very hard. And what we find is that to be disciples of Jesus, we may well have to swim against the tide of general practice and public opinion, which may lead to persecution. That's what's happening around the world to many of Jesus' followers. And when Jesus made that statement about taking up our cross, very often that's what it's about. It's about going against the tide of public opinion and even going against um, national legislation that seems to be being put in place to oppose the things of God. On the subjects of divorce and wealth, so demanding was Jesus' um, teaching and requirements that the disciples couldn't believe that it would work. If you look at chapter 19, when he's finished talking about divorce, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, uh, it is better not to marry. It won't work, Jesus. What you're teaching will not work. And then when he's talking to the, the young man, he says, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they said, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? So the, the disciples felt that Jesus' teaching was very hard, very hard. It can't work. But Jesus said, fortunately, fortunately with man it, this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But what seems hard, and God through his power and his grace in our lives can help us to fulfil his will. That's important. But it can look so demanding. But this chapter, I think, is bang up to date. Our Western society is dominated by sex and, sex and casualness in relationships. You've only got to read the tabloid newspapers uh, to see that they feed on this daily and also the soaps that glamorise, break up in relationships, and the th sort of things that proceed from that. And there's also, we are dominated by the deceitfulness of wealth. We are bombarded with the advertising that encourages us to be covetous. We are told what we need to buy, what we need to change, what we need new of. Uh, and um, the National Lottery is put forward as a guaranteed road to happiness. See all the pictures, lovely smiling people, full of happiness. But it's deceitful. Jesus said, beware of the deceitfulness of wealth. And most shameful of all, children are exploited around the world to meet the demands often of the wealthy in the West. Uh, it's estimated that annually 1.2 million children are trafficked for cheap labour labor and the sex trade. But God cares for children and it was illustrated there as Jesus called the children to him. The disciples thought Jesus had something more important to do 
but nothing was more important than attending to the children. Well, we're only going to look at one of these this morning, and it's the first one. Uh, Although it may be headed divorce in your Bible, we're actually going to look at marriage. So if we can have the first slide, please. You can go, ooh, ah, ah, ah. Well, it's estimated that um, just with the um, BBC um, transmission alone, 30 million people watched the BBC coverage uh, of the royal wedding and worldwide, over 180 countries, 12 billion people watched the royal wedding. People's reasons for watching it and even going there and sleeping out all night and pressing forward in the crowd to to get a a, a glimpse, their reasons will be varied, of course. Um, Whatever you might say, it was a magnificent spectacle. Uh, British pageantry at its best, I think. Um, and, um, but perhaps the overwhelming reason uh, why people watched it was because it was a love story, or it is a love story. And uh, at heart, we're, most of us are real suckers when it comes to a love story. Um, and um, uh, there's something very attractive about watching, watching love blossom and then culminating in wedding celebrations. It's lovely. But um, when it's royalty and when it's a prince, it has the potential uh, to have a fairy tale image about it. I mean, every good story should have its prince, shouldn't it? Prince Charming, um, who manages to get his bride. And it's even more magical if she comes from an obscure background into the spotlight of royalty. Well, here we have it. She's called a commoner, or was, no longer a commoner. Uh, but there we have the fairy tale, perhaps. So we've got our true life fairy tale, and we might be tempted to add, and they lived happily ever after. I hope they will. I hope they will live happily ever after, as it were, and that their marriage will hold. On a more pragmatic note, when the commentators on the day were looking for possible wider implications uh, of the event... They got various people sat down in front of them, experts that they um, interviewed and so on. The question that came up frequently, posed in different ways, was uh, what, if anything, has this done for the royal family? Has this reinforced the, uh, the, uh, the institution of the monarchy uh, in the eyes of the British public? Now, this would be with the background that there would be some in this country who would like to do away with the monarchy um, they feel they've, they're past their sell-by date and that they would rather have a republic like perhaps other countries. Well, um, most of the experts I saw interviewed thought it was an excellent day for the monarchy and um, helping to underpin it for the foreseeable future. But I'd rather ask a different question, not one that I heard the commentators ask, um, and it relates to what was clearly the focus of the whole occasion. Not the fairy tale romance, not the uh, splendid pageantry, not even the balcony kiss, but the wedding ceremony itself, the marriage ceremony itself. So my question is, what, if anything, has the royal wedding done for the institution of marriage uh, in a day and age when couples who marry are now in the minority in this country, anyway, and um, there's a variety of alternative 
uh, ways of expressing companionship and sexual fulfilment, which is being supported and even legitimised through Parliament. So this is the, the setting. And even many couples who eventually marry first cohabit for a while um, as a trial run. Well, not only was um, the marriage ceremony at the very centre of the event, it was conducted as a solemn act which reiterated and celebrated the biblical basis for this union. It was there for all to see. And of course it was also conducted as a Christian act. And I think that's not insignificant uh, in a day and age when we are under uh, great pressure to accommodate the multiracial, multi-religious nature of our society. Well, I sincerely hope that this act, viewed by millions, will have elevated the institution of marriage in the eyes of many people. Who knows? Who knows? But I think we should rejoice that it was on display. God's foundational truth uh, regarding men and women was on display to the whole world. We can have the slide off now, please. Um, this morning, I want to take a few moments to remind us of the biblical basis for marriage and that most of all that we are custodians uh, of this wonderful truth, the truth that it represents and to defend it with all our hearts and that's um, no matter how much the culture changes, no matter how many distortions of human sexuality there are um, and, and what we're persuaded to accept in the name of human rights and may I add that no matter how many failed or bad examples of marriage we may encounter. Now before I go any further, I want to say that um, in any company of people there will always be those for whom the marriage experience has been painful um, and it doesn't hold good memories for them. Um, and um, I want to say that whatever your experience, God loves you and there is grace for you. God does not condemn you for things like that in the past. Uh, and also there may be those who are among us who are single. Um, sometimes by choice, sometimes not by choice. And again, I want to say that in the scriptures, singleness um, is highly rated by God. Jesus himself remained single. The Apostle Paul remained single. So sing singleness is not second best uh, if that's God's will for you. Um, but I do want to champion what God champions uh, in the way of marriage. When it comes to the style of the marriage ceremony uh, and the way it's conducted and the celebrations which accompany it, it will vary according to culture. We've only looked at that around the world and even in our own country. But we do not champion marriage on the basis of culture. Uh, not even Christian culture uh, because marriage was instituted long before there was such a thing as Christian culture. But primarily because it is a creation ordinance. It was there at creation. God having created man in his own image, he instituted his design for the companionship of a man and a woman. Uh, and through that companionship, the human race would be perpetuated. But uh, it is a creation ordinance. It is God's gift to his creation. Um, it is therefore good for mankind. If God has given something to us, it must be good for mankind. So to abandon it, to distort it, uh, to even underrate it uh, must be to the detriment of mankind. 
And that's the basis, that's the reason why I, I want to promote it this morning, why I'm promoting marriage this morning. If, if we, uh, in any way, give it less importance than God gives it, then it's to the detriment of mankind as a whole. Not just to Christians who believe these things particularly, but to mankind as a whole. Well, just a fairy tale. Uh, Maybe much of the romance of William and Kate will seem like a fairy tale to us. And I think the essence of a fairy tale is um, that it's something which is outside the experience of normal people. It's a dream. It's uh, something that we put out there and we like to enjoy, we like to watch it, but it's something outside of our experience. But I want to say that um, when William and Kate came to make their vows, they made them in the same way that everybody else would. And you could strip away all the royalty and the pageantry uh, and all the, the fuss that went on, and metaphorically you could, could stand them in a, an open field naked and they would be the same as us. Right, the same as any couple who come together to get married. Well, firstly, we're going to look in Genesis, where we see this creation ordinance, um, then in the Gospels and finally in the writings of the Apostles. And we will see that repeatedly the creation statement about marriage uh, comes through, right through the Gospels. And it's for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. You can keep your finger, if you like, or something in Matthew 19, but please have a look at Genesis chapter 2. Right at the end of chapter 1, we have this verse, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So we know that God created a perfect universe. He was pleased with it. It was very good. And everything, everything about it, the way it worked together, Everything was good. But interestingly, when we get to chapter 2 and verse 18, we find something was not good. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And I want to look at that verse and just analyse it a little bit. It is not good. A suitable helper is needed. If we were to read on, um, all the animals are presented to Adam and he names them. But none of, there's no suitable helper found from among them. And um, what we have to accept, of course, is that um, there are um, good relationships outside of marriage. There are friendships. We can even have a relationship with animals that can be quite fulfilling in many ways. But God provides man with a woman. And not just to be a partner in procreation, but to be a complementary companion providing mutual support and She's to be two things, it says here. She's to be a helper, uh, one which is one who supports both physically and emotionally. Now, we, we can have a, a bit of a, a low view of this word helper. It can seem to be maybe a bit demeaning. She's the one that's doing the work and helping the man. Um, and it, we see it as a lesser role. But we need to understand that um, God calls himself a helper. God is our helper. Uh, and it's a very high calling to be a helper. And uh, although men have abused this term, it is nonetheless a very high calling. So she's to be a helper and someone who is suitable, someone who is complementary but different. She's to be a counterpart 
I don't hear it much these days, but sometimes when somebody introduced their spouse, they would say, this is my better half. Do you say that about your, if you have a spouse? Do you say, this is my, I have my other half or my better half? But it's expressing a truth. We are one and we are half of, half of that one, as it were. And so it's, it's, that's um, you know, a, a truth which explains it. And Adam realises that although different, she's part of his family. And verse 23 says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, part of the family. Together they will fulfil one another's need for companionship. And this is through the institution of marriage described in verse 24, which we've already quoted, but I'll read it again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And although this is described from the man's point of view, the same applies for the woman. It applies to both parties. So let's look at this verse. First of all, they are to leave. and Both are no longer dependent on or responsible to their parents. There is, uh, this leaving means um, that there is a, a new unit being formed. And they, this leaving means that they leave both psychologically and emotionally uh, to form a new relationship. The marriage is now their primary relationship. Now, I don't know whether you've experienced it, but perhaps some of us have, have, have seen marriages where the children were unable to leave their parents emotionally and parents who couldn't let go of their children emotionally. Now, of course, parents want to support their married children, which is absolutely right. Uh, but sometimes that, that help becomes interference and controlling, which uh, is very unhelpful. No, there needs to be a clear leaving by the children from their parents because they are now, that is not now the primary uh, relationship. They are then to unite. The old word is cleave. Remember, it was cleave. That sounds a bit more dynamic, doesn't it, than, than, than unite. And it, but it speaks of passion and commitment, about being glued together, not an a incidental or a temporary arrangement. Uh, it's something you know, very um, uh, uh, permanent about it. And then they're to become one flesh. Um, this does mean sexual, un sexual union, of course, but it means more than that. And we get a clue about that from what Paul says to the Corinthians regarding a man who, who goes with a prostitute. He says, if a man um, uh, unites himself with a prostitute, he becomes one flesh with her. But there's no suggestion they should get married. And in fact, he tells the man to flee from such things. So it is actually more than sexual intercourse. Um, marriage involves the whole person and that the two make one new person, not just a new family unit. There's something very special about the relationship. Jesus tells us that God is involved in joining the two, if you caught the words on, on the video. God is involved in joining the two. And Paul tells us it's a mystery. This coming together of a man and a woman in marriage is a mystery, um, which is akin to the mystery of the union between Christ and the church. So they bring different things to the marriage. Uh, they, do not, uh, they do have their own life, but they, there is no separateness because an exclusive joining has taken place that no other relationship can provide. 
This has profound implications, which maybe in some ways goes to explain the pain that comes through divorce so often. Before we, before we look at the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, um, I just want to say something about cohabitation um, in the light of what we've considered. Um, when I was young and when many of you were young, cohabitation was not socially acceptable. And um, even if people didn't fully understand, understand the word sin, it was applied to it. Um, they are living in sin. And in fact, the word sin almost seemed to be synonymous with people who were living together outside of marriage uh, and so on. And um, so it was applied to it. But if we uh, look at where we are now, how far we have moved, and both socially and legally, it's now largely an acceptable alternative to marriage in our society. Some would say that you don't need a religious service and a piece of paper to be married. It's about commitment. And I think there are Christians who feel perhaps we ought to go down this road. Perhaps we ought to accept that. Now, um, I must say that if a couple come together and they come and they commit themselves together in their own minds for life, it goes a long way towards marriage. That form of uh, cohabitation where there's a degree of commitment goes a long way towards marriage. Um, but it is not marriage. And I want to give you four reasons why it's not marriage. And um, my primary reason here is not to bash people who um, are cohabiting, but to show you how special uh, marriage is and how unique it is in God's plan and purpose. So then marriage, uh, four points here. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. What do we say? Till death us do part. That's the marriage ceremony. And even if you get married in a register office, there are similar words which assume that this union um, is actually for life. All too often, cohabiting is seen as a trial period, either for further cohabiting or maybe for marriage down the line. Statistics are quite clear that such relationships are more likely to fail than those who commit uh, in marriage. And um, uh, it's a com the commitment that underpins the marriage, not the trial. That's very important. It's the commitment that underpins the marriage and the relationship, not the trial. So it's a lifelong commitment, uh, marriage. Um, it's also a public declaration. Very often cohabitation or cohabiting is a private arrangement. Um, often other people don't know about it. It's, it's sometimes um, done surreptitiously perhaps. Uh, not always, of course but it is, uh, it is seen as a private arrangement. Marriage is a public one. It's an arrangement with profound social and legal consequences. Usually the families are involved in a wedding, aren't they, in a marriage. The families come together and in many marriage uh, ceremonies, the father gives away the bride. All right? He's saying, she's no longer my responsibility, she's all yours, mate. It can, can be, but you see, there is something you know very um, public about it. And uh, thirdly, uh, there's a new standing in the community um, with marriage. Marriage acknowledges that a new relationship has this new relationship has an impact on the wider community to be recognised and honoured. Usually, cohabitation does not. Fourthly, 
Um, with marriage, the public commitment comes before the sexual union. That's how it should work. Okay. Well, that's not so, um, obviously, uh, for cohabitation. And where the, we have the statement, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It would appear there is an order there. There is a leaving, there is a uniting, and then there is a becoming one flesh. And it, I think it's clear from the scriptures, but it's usually unpopular today, and we may find ourselves in hot water for saying it. But any sexual relationship outside of marriage, as described in the scriptures, is immorality. That's, that's what the Bible teaches about it. So there is something very distinctive about marriage as compared with cohabitation. Let's look at Matthew 19 at what Jesus said. We saw it on the screen there. But let's um, look at it a little more closely. Matthew 19 and verse 1. If you've got an NIV, um, NIV, you're, they put a heading there, divorce. And of course that's what Jesus was being questioned about by the Pharisees. And sadly this passage is, is often um, looked at by people um, who are trying to see whether there's some legitimate way in which they can be divorced and maybe remarried uh, and still keep within God's plan. Um, that's inevitable um, in, in life that these sort of things will happen. Um, and of course Jesus is talking about divorce, but I, I want to look at it from another perspective. Uh, I want to, 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 for us to see that rather than talk about divorce, Jesus wants to talk about marriage and what God's plan is, and that's the way we will look at it. So verse 1, then, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? I'm not going into the whys and wherefores of divorce. Um, I have spoken on it before. We're looking at marriage and this is what Jesus does. He says, I'm not interested in what the rabbis think because there were two schools of thought, two, two rabbis... Uh, schools that one was very lenient about divorce, the other was very strict. And they want to know, Jesus, which one are you going for? And of course Jesus brushes that aside and said, I don't care about what the, the rabbis say, I'm more interested in what God has to say. So this is what Jesus said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So there's that creation ordinance expressed again. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now Jesus takes that statement and he adds to it. He strengthens it by saying that what God has joined, that God has done something. God is involved in um, the marriage union in some way. Now, I would love to know the depth of what that means. What does it mean when it says what God has joined? How has God joined them? I don't know fully. But what we know is that Jesus thought it was very important that God was involved in this union. And I think we get the impression from what he has to say after this is that we tamper with it at our peril. 
We interfere with it. We try and change it uh, at our peril. The Pharisees are not satisfied. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. In other words, because of sin. You weren't prepared to work at it. You wanted an easy way out. But it, is not, it was not this way from the beginning. So he goes back to creation again. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. I say I'm not going into the whys and wherefores of divorce, but what Jesus is saying, I think, is this is very precious. God has blessed it. God has ordained it. Don't play around with it. Otherwise, you're going to have such pain and you may even stray into immorality. So we have those uh, things from the Pharisees. Then we find that the disciples get involved. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. I mentioned this right at the beginning. They found his teaching very hard. But Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven, which would put Jesus in that category and also the Apostle Paul. The one who can accept this should accept it. As I said earlier, that following God, being a disciple of Jesus can be really hard We go against the grain, we go against the flow and we go against the the, uh, tenor of public opinion. We may even go against what we think is reasonable. Um, Very often when it comes to um, these things with marital disputes and, and, and concerns in marriage, we start saying to ourselves, well, it's only reasonable that I should do this. It's only reasonable that we should do that. And sometimes Jesus calls us to do what is not reasonable to us. But as I said, the great thing is, he said, with God, all things are possible. And of course, we had the same thing um, with the the rich young man. Um, If you think back to Matthew 5, when we had the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about adultery there. And he said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, quoting the Ten Commandments. Uh, And he said, I tell you, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, then he has committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, a very, very hard saying, because men are stimulated by what they look at, uh, perhaps more more than women. Now, of course, what he's saying is it's wrong, but I would also say that he's mentioning it because it's an attack on marriage. It's an attack on the person who's looking and it's the person who's being looked at as well. It's an attack on marriage. And I think in all these things, Jesus is saying, fight to protect marriage at all costs. Don't look for loopholes. Protect it at all costs. Um, Just turn uh, briefly to um, Ephesians chapter 5, really. I'm not going to go at great lengths here, but... And uh, verse 21, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. In this chapter, it's quoted again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Paul is talking about how we behave towards one another in the church, about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then um, he starts to talk 
um, about the relationship between a husband and a wife and relates it uh, to Christ and the church. And it's like a double-headed metaphor here. You know, a metaphor is something that's familiar used to describe something that's less familiar. Right? It's to, to help us understand. And uh, Paul kind of turns it on its head um, uh, because, first of all, he says, how can we understand the relationship between Christ and the church? And what does he take? What example does he take? What's, what's the highest example he can take? Because this is a profound thing, isn't it? The relationship between Christ and his church is very profound. So what can he take? He takes marriage as an example of the relationship between Christ and the church. Look how high that puts, puts marriage in God's, in God's sight, in God's view. And so he says, it, it, you know, the example is marriage. And then the other question is, how can we understand the quality of the relationship God intends for a husband and wife? And he said, it's a mystery, but it's the same as the relationship between Christ and the church. And this is very demanding for men. If you are familiar with this passage, you will know that uh, Paul says that the man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which means sacrificially. But the point about this is, I think it's absolutely amazing how marriage is the thing that is used to describe this mystery between Christ and the church. If you'd like now to turn to Revelation chapter 18... Chapter 19. What we find is right through the Bible, when God wants to describe his relationship with his people, those that he's chosen, the way he wants to describe it, very often he uses the description of marriage. Israel was married to him. All right? Israel um, was very promiscuous. Right, and went running after other gods, which grieved God terribly. But all through the Bible, this, this, the best way that God found to, to get people to understand what the, his relationship was with his people was to use the illustration of marriage. And in, Matthew, sorry, in Revelation 19 and verse 6, here we have the end of the age, when God is about to usher in a new age where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. It is the focus of all history. This is where it's all heading. Everything is heading in this direction. And there's going to be an amazing celebration when Jesus and his church are united. That church made up of people over the centuries from every race, nation, tribe and tongue. What an amazing event. And how can it be described? Well, it's described like a wedding supper, like a wedding celebration. Verse 6, 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give, glory to, give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So this culmination of the ages um, is being described as a wedding between Christ 
and his church. And then chapter 21. Just the first few verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. They will wipe away every, sorry, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So this wonderful thing that's happening at the end of the age is being described like a wedding, like a marriage. I want to take you um, back um, to almost this time last year when Steve um, preached uh, on the Lord's Supper. You may not remember that specifically, but you might remember that Steve gave us some insights into Jewish marriage, uh, which was um, very helpful. The Jewish marriage has uh, two parts to it. There is the betrothal and then there's the marriage itself. And the betrothal is much more than our engagement. Um, they, they were actually legally married at that point, although they had not come together. There was a covenant that had already been made. And to break it required some legal, legal procedures. And you might remember uh, the Christmas story, the fact that uh, Mary was betrothed to Jesus, when um, uh, <laughs> betrothed to Joseph. When Joseph um, discovered that she was pregnant, He needed to do something about it. They were only, in our minds, betrothed. um, But as far as he was concerned, adultery had taken place and it needed to be dealt with. Fortunately, uh, God filled him in on the detail and uh, he wasn't um, going to follow that through. So it's not like our engagement. Um, Unfaithfulness during a betrothal was considered adultery. Can we have the second slide up? Second and last slide. At the betrothal, the bridegroom would offer the woman a cup of wine. If she agreed to be betrothed to him, she would drink from the cup and the bridegroom would say, I will not drink of this cup until we are reunited. And then he would go away and he would prepare the home for them. Does that kind of ring any any bells for us? Jesus said, I'm going away but I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am you may be also. He's going away to prepare a home for his bride. And um, as we, if we read in Matthew 26, the, where Jesus talks about the, uh, um, the last, last Supper, we read this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new and new with you in my Father's kingdom. That culmination of the ages. So can you see the parallel? I think this is an amazing revelation that Steve was able to share with us 
about the, what happens when we take communion, that we're remembering that on that day, Jesus was betrothed to his disciples and that it was looking forward to that day when the marriage would be complete, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, again, this just illustrates that when God wants to describe this wonderful relationship between himself and his people, um, he chooses marriage uh, to, in order to do that. And um, you, as I come to the end now, um, some of you might say, well, I, I understand all this, I believe in marriage, I've had a successful, faithful marriage. I'm not sure um, how relevant this is to me. It is relevant because we are custodians of this truth. Uh, we are the ones... Uh, that need to hold on to this truth. No matter what society says, right, no matter what society may use to attack marriage, uh, to devalue it, we need to hold on to it because it's God's intention for his creation. It's what God has intended for the good uh, of mankind. There are churches that seem to be under pressure uh, to accommodate um, variations to this in the world, to bless what... I would think God is not blessing, uh, which is very sad. Uh, and, uh, but we need to hold on to this. This is not to say that we don't welcome people into our midst who've had all sorts of checkered history regarding marriage and relationships. Um, God is the God who deals with the past. But when it comes to the way we live and the way we look to the future, we need to champion marriage in the way that God champions it. And we need to bless people as we encourage them to do that. And I, I, I would say, let's continue to pray for the married. Let's pray for people who are married. So many attacks come on to marriage these days. Let's pray for them. And if marriage becomes difficult, if they're struggling in some way, let's stand with them and let's fight with them for this amazing institution to be preserved. And also, and when it comes to our young people, let's hold this up uh, as God's wonderful gift to his creation, uh, not to be sidelined or to, to be devalued or to be altered in any way, but to be taken as a gift from God um, for not just uh, to please him, but to be the best way for us uh, to build society around the family unit. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that not only have you given us laws and commands to live by, but you've given us an insight, Lord, into your creative plan, your plan for the ages, your plan for mankind, uh, who were the pinnacle of your creation. Lord, thank you that those of us that call ourselves human beings, Lord, we see that we were made in your image, and Father God, we want to display that image through our relationships. Father, I pray for all relationships, Lord, um, for those that you bless. Uh, Father, for friendships, uh, for relationships in the church, but especially this morning, I pray, Father God, that your church may be the champion of this wonderful institution that is called marriage. Yes, Lord, we struggle sometimes. Our sin gets in the way, and, and Lord, it's often less than it should be. But, Lord, we continue to champion it, to promote it, uh, to teach it, uh, Lord, because it's your blessing for mankind. Lord, will you help us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.